Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. I am your host, Kerry, from the band Bug Eye, and I am joined by the wonderful, the fabulous, the one and only... Gracie Tukies! Hey, what an introduction. Angela needs to up a game a bit there. I know, right? you've, uh... I was like, I felt like I wanted to make, make a moment of it. And I'm sure that I reckon our regular listeners are probably asking themselves right now, where is Angela? Where is she? She's missing today. She, she, she's slacking off. <laughs> well, with good reason, to be fair. Our great and fearless leader, the A-Meister General... Yeah. Is, Did we decide on that in the end in uh, in Hastings? Uh, I don't know, but I, why not? Let's go with the A Meister yeah, General. Yeah, let's go for it. A Meister um, General. She's feeling a bit poorly at the moment. So uh, you're going to be treated to a Keza and Tukey's special episode today. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, which I'm very excited for. We've been let loose, for better or worse. We have been let loose. I have a feeling let's, this let's... could end up being a three hour episode if we're not careful. Yeah, well, the way this champagne's going down, mate, I think uh, I think it might be. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Gracie. What what are you drinking? I'm drinking champagne <laughs> now. <laughs> Fancy bitch. I don't you. normally drink champagne. It's uh, it's mine and Celia's anniversary tomorrow, Aww. so we've really we've gone all out. We really have Aww. champagne. She made she did me a cake. Bless her little heart. That's super cute. I wanted to make fun of you, but you made it all cute, and now I can't. I've made her a card. It's shit, but I've tried my best, <laughs> Kerry. I've tried my best. Tell me about the card. Why is it shit? What's on the card? Well, what I tried to do was because it's, oh, it's going to get really soppy now, silly. Basically, every year we go to Paris. We can't go to Paris this year for obvious reasons. So I, I've made her a card and I did, uh, I tried to draw the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. But I'm shit at drawing. <laughs> I, did, I didn't think it through. So I drew the Eiffel Tower and it's just, it's terrible. Aww. But she'll like it because I try my best, and that's all that matters. That's isn't it? true. That's true. I've never seen you your your drawing efforts. I don't think. I don't think I've ever seen anything yeah, that you've tried to draw. There's a reason for that, mate. <laughs> well, I know. Oh, hang on, Siri. Siri, come to life. Siri came through. Then sorry. <laughs> Siri came through. Sorry, mate. He's he's, he's all <laughs> right now. He's gone. <laughs> I like the way it came through. Know. Like it was like a spirit, like coming through, like or a medium, <laughs> like channeling some sort of bizarre spirit called Siri. I'm go- sorry. I I do actually think I might need to switch it off. How do you switch him off? I do not own any Apple products. I cannot help you. I did used to work in a call center giving technical support for Apple products and yet still have no idea how to use them. (laughs) 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 So anyone who calls Apple care should be concerned because I used to be one of those humans for a very brief time. (laughs) Right. I think Siri switched off now. Sorry about that, Keza. It's all good. It's all good, two keys. So today we, uh, we decided on a theme of well I don't really know how to describe it I feel like maybe because we're in lockdown and for the most part all we see is like the inside of our flats right we decided to try and look a bit further afield transport Mm -hmm. people a bit further around the road around the road around the world what am I trying to say (laughs) (laughs) down the road because down the road would be around the world to be to be honest (laughs) right now um 
a bit further around the world uh, to look at some stories from the world of music outside of Europe and North America. Because I think that we do tend yeah. to end up focused on uh, on artists from those places and music from those places. We do, yeah. So I think, what was the rule? Anything outside of Europe and, and North America, yeah, that, but that was it, right? Pretty much, yeah, that was the rule. So, uh, <laughs> so what Oops. are you going to talk about today, Gracie? Um, I am going to talk about, um, I guess we could call it African punk. Very cool. Tell me I'm more. Gonna, that's all I'm going to say. That's all, oh, I'm, that's all I'm going to say for now. That's Ooh. all you're getting for now, Keza. Well, I was going to give a little bit more, but now maybe I'm going to be a bit more cagey with mine to begin with too. <laughs> so you're going to talk about African punk and I am going to talk about Cambodian rock. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I'm looking forward to this. So yeah, Africa and Cambodia are where we are going to transport you to today, listeners. That's what you're going to be treated to, for better or worse. Um, And uh, what new music have you brought along today? So today I have a band called Animal Breakdown, who I believe have been played on the podcast before. I believe so, yeah. They released a new single uh, last Friday, Friday the 13th. So yeah, that'll be my new music for today. What about you, Keza? Very cool. I'm going to uh, feature a song by Teenage Waitress who I've also um, mm. played on the podcast before. And uh, their debut album came out also on Friday the 13th. Nice. Um, so I have picked a, a song that I really liked off of the album, um, which, yeah, I'm going to play a little later in the show. I look forward to that, Keza. So uh, who's going to go first, me or you? I think I think you should go first. You, you look like you're dying to... Uh... I've got to, You're dying to go I've got, on this I've got to be one. honest, I am pretty excited to talk about this one because I just find it really, really <laughs> interesting. It's, a, it's something that I only found out about relatively recently um, and okay. I literally had no clue about it before I found out about it, which I guess is... Well, when you told me what you were going to do, I thought this is really interesting because I have nothing to contribute to this <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. So educate me because I, I don't know a thing about this. Cool. So... Uh, this is actually something I discovered about when I lived um, in Canada and a, a friend of mine um, played me uh, the CD, which is called uh, The Rough Guys to Psychedelic Cambodia. And he was just like, this music is amazing. You need to hear this. And he told me the whole story. And I was like, oh, my God, how did I never know about this? So I'm going to talk about the tragic story of the incredible Cambodian rock scene, which was thriving during the 60s and early 70s um, and was silenced by the Khmer Rouge in 1975. So I'm going to be honest, this story does not have a happy ending. Well, neither does mine. So, so you know, we, we don't want to leave people feeling sad today, but our stories are... Not the cheeriest at the end, but they Sometimes are. Sometimes the world is shit, so we have to face up to that, <laughs> Kesa, don't that we? That is reality, but it is super duper interesting, and there are some happy parts before the sad part. So here we go. Um, so the Cambodian rock scene uh, was based in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. Um, Cambodia used to be a French colony, so. My whole story is all quite connected with history and politics, the kind of the music and the history Mm -hmm. and the politics all sort of come together. So in 1953, Cambodia gained independence from France and the young king, Norodom Sihanouk, there's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to... Very well pronounced. I think that one was right. 
not going to promise they all will be, but I'm going to do my best. So the young king, Norodom Sihanouk, who was a musician and a songwriter himself, encouraged the development of homegrown popular music. So Cambodians' international relations with France and various countries in Latin America fostered the importation of pop records into the country. And so French pop music, Latin jazz, cha-cha and a go-go records became popular in Phnom Penh. So these were the first sort of Western pop music styles that sort of started to invade the music scene. So So what year is this? Sorry, what decade are we in now? We are early 50s. So 1953 (laughs) was when they gained independence. Um, And the the king at the time was all about trying to kind of bring popular music in and, and stuff like that. So by the late 50s, these genres were really kind of seeping into the flourishing local pop scene and artists were creating a new and unique sound which combined their traditional Cambodian music forms with these new international influences. So by 1959... Um, American and British pop and early rock and roll records also began to appear in Cambodia and these were particularly inspiring to the teenage music fans so um, that year so 1959 um, teen brothers Mol Kanol and Mol Kamak um, formed a band called Baxi Cham Krong um, which is widely considered to be Cambodia's first rock band Oh, cool. So before that, you know, they had pop music and there was sort of this combination of yeah. Cambodian and, and various forms of pop, but they were the first um, band to be... They a, had the rebellion rock of like rock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the band <laughs> were originally inspired by the vocals of Paul Anker and Pat Boone. Um, and then they added inspiration from guitar-driven music um, of The Ventures and Chuck Berry. And they modelled their stage presence after Cliff Richard's 1961 movie, The Young Ones. It's mad how far these influences reach. Well, isn't that's it. it. Well, that's what's so interesting. Like, if you imagine just all of these sort of influences coming into this totally different culture, and then sort of the way that they sort of imitated parts of it and put different parts of it together to kind of create something yeah. new. Um, so, so yeah, so they were the first, basically, um, sort of to be considered a rock band. And many of the later Cambodian rock musicians cited um, them as a sort of formative influence including even sort of older singers who were popular before that band, but then sort of came to rock music later, one of which um, is Sin Sissimuth. So Sin Sissimuth was a highly influential and extremely prolific singer and songwriter from the 50s to the 70s. Um, Reading about him, I found him referred to the King of Khmer Music, the Elvis of Cambodia, um, (laughs) and people also refer to him as Grandmaster Sissimuth. So he's like, he's the big cheese, basically, in uh, Cambodian kind of pop and rock music. Um, And he was among the earliest stars in the pop scene um, with his vocals likened to Nat King Cole um, and his stage presence likened to Frank Sinatra. So, yeah, so he was uh, a particular leader sort of in absorbing international influences. And by the mid 60s, um, he had become Cambodia's most well-known pop music performer. Um, so around this time, sort of the mid-60s, uh, the, Cambodia, the Cambodian music scene was also further influenced by Western rock and soul music um, via US Armed Forces Radio that was being broadcast to troops stationed nearby during the Vietnam War that people were able to tune into. Um, and so the music, so Synthesimuth and the music in general increasingly incorporated rock music influences, including psychedelic rock and garage rock. 
that they were hearing from these um, sort of, uh, yeah, the US Armed Forces radio um, that was being broadcast. So Sissamuth was a prolific songwriter. He's confirmed to have written more than a thousand songs for himself oh and for God. others. Oh my God. Yeah. Thousand songs? Yeah. Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And when you hear the way this story goes, the fact that that's what's confirmed means that he probably wrote a lot more than that as well. Yeah. Oh my God, that's mad. Um, and he was also known to adapt popular Western pop and rock songs with new Khmer lyrics, which was sort of a common thing across the genre as well. So you yeah. find versions of songs like Black Magic Woman by Santa- Santana, um, House of the Rising Sun, Hey Jude, um, but <laughs> with in Khmer, so in like Cambodian. So all the lyrics changed God, and the name changed and the whole sound of it changed. And they're amazing. They're so, so cool. They're really cool versions. Um <clears throat> So Sissamuth was also really important in the scene because he sort of fostered the careers of younger singers and musicians um, who were, were coming up. So he would write songs for them while also getting them to perform on many of his songs as well. So yeah. uh, one of these uh, performers that he sort of helped bring to the fore was uh, Pen Ran, who was one of the earliest rock-orientated female singers in the Cambodian scene. Um, first emerging in 1963 with traditional pop songs, but moving into rock music by 1966 via duets with Sissamuth as well as her own songs. Now, Pen Ran, in fact, the women in the scene in general, absolute legends. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so she was known for her unrestrained personality and Western orientated hairstyles and fashions. Um, and for rejecting traditional demands on Khmer women and representing new and modern gender roles. So her flirtatious onstage dancing and risque lyrics were considered scandalous in Cambodia at the time. So she's basically a punk. Kind yeah, of, you know. I was going to say, yeah. For, for the time uh, and in Cambodia. Um, some of her translated titles of her songs include I'm Unsatisfied and I Want to Be Your Lover, sort of demonstrating her focus on romance and sexuality. Um, and it's Too Late Old Man is kind of a rejection of the traditional <laughs> courtship <laughs> that would happen in Cambodia. Brilliant. I love it. Absolute legend. That's amazing. Um, and she was also known for being a very versatile singer. So her repertoire consisted of traditional Cambodian music, rock, twist, cha-cha-cha, a go-go, mambo, jazz, and folk. And talking about those sort of uh, Khmer versions of popular songs, she does a version of Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down. Oh, which God, is really? Which is so, so good. It's all in Khmer. Oh, amazing. So, so it's all in... Maybe, do you think we should put um, a playlist together? Yeah, maybe maybe we should. I'm gonna put because I feel like there's so many. Yeah, we definitely that we need to hear. That's true. I'm definitely going to include a link um, to the Rough Guide to Psychedelic Cambodia, which is the the CD yeah. I first heard, um, and that song yeah. is on there. Her version of Bang Bang, My Baby okay. Shut Me Down, is on there, um, and it's brilliant. Um, so uh, another female singer whose career Sismuth was instrumental in launching was uh, this one's a tough one. Rosary, <laughs> Rosary Sovia. Pretty sure that's right. Ro- Rosary Sovia. So she had been singing at weddings and quickly became the leading female singer in the Cambodian rock scene after her emergence <coughs> in 1967. So you pretty much mm-hmm. have Sin Sissimuth and Rosary Sovia are like 
yeah. the two like sort of most popular people in the scene and like most of the songs. So they they were like punk before punk. Yeah, pretty much. These like in a lot of ways. Like maybe not like stylistically in the music, right? But in terms of yeah, like but... what they were doing and what they were about in so many ways. Yes. The general ethos was I think pretty punk. I think they totally yeah. were. Um had they suffered for it, which we'll find out soon enough. But um yeah, so her so yeah uh, she received wide recognition for her high and clear singing voice and her ability to convey emotions from mischief to flirtation to heartbreak and tragedy there's um her sort of personality is generally reported to have been quite reserved but it seems like she was mm. sort of one of these people that really like came to life when she performed you know so if you were to speak to her she'd be quite shy and reserved but on stage she was something else completely yeah, that that seems to be quite a common thing, doesn't it? It's really interesting, that. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, I might not be to that extreme yeah, or anything, but when you get on stage, it's a persona, isn't it? Like, you're able to be yeah. someone that you, you wouldn't necessarily be in your normal life. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she was also one of many female singers in the rock scene in Cambodia to utilise the traditional ghost voice Cambodian singing technique which featured a high register with quick jumps among octaves, um, which creates an effect that's been compared to yodeling. Um, and this style of singing was another factor sort of in the genre's unique sound. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you can imagine this combination of her high and clear voice um, in this, you know, ghost voice Cambodian singing technique uh, with backing provided by young rock musicians characterized by prominent electric guitars, drums, and far fisa organs. Um, it was very much sort of like the quintessential Cambodian rock sound, if you like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rosary, Cynthia, and Penran are both believed to have sung on hundreds of songs. Um, it's generally like a super, was a super prolific scene, like, these people were writing so many songs. Penran also wrote many of her own songs. I think Rosary Sodia yeah. did as well. Um, still writing loads of songs, doing loads of covers, singing on loads of recordings, and not only of Cambodian rock music. Lots of them were also maintaining like other careers at the same time, doing like traditional Cambodian music and pop music and yeah. like all these other things. Yeah, so they're still within music, but yeah, outside of exactly. Yeah. Um, so I sort of picked those three as like three of the most popular and the ones that you'll find their music the most um, mm-hmm. to like go into detail about. Um, and they sort of were also ones that maintained careers throughout the whole sort of period of time that this music was happening. Yeah. Um, so by 1969, um, Norodom Sihanouk had lost the support of many urban and educated Cambodians due to his inability to keep the hostilities of the Vietnam War from spilling across the country's borders. So in March 1970, Sihanouk was deposed by the Cambodian National Assembly and replaced by military leader Lon Nol, forming the right-wing pro-American Khmer Republic. So rock musicians in Phnom Penh generally favoured the new Khmer Republic government and turned against Mm -hmm. Sihanouk, who had been like their patron at the beginning and the one that sort of gave them their start. Um, But they sort of turned against him, particularly after he attempted to maintain his support in Cambodia's rural countryside by aligning with the communist Khmer Rouge insurgents. Mm -hmm. So many singers, including Sinsisimuth, released patriotic songs and made public appearances to support the Khmer Republic military. Um, Rosary Sophia released a song called The Traitor that directly criticised Sihanouk 
um, who, like I said, had like originally been like her patron. Um, and mm-hmm. Sodia also directly participated in the Khmer Republic military. And in fact, there's, I haven't seen it, but there's apparently a film of her parachuting out of a plane during a paratrooper exercise, which is like the only known video footage of her that exists. Um, so the Khmer Republic's increased relations with the United States allowed the new musical influences to infiltrate the, the Cambodian rock scene um, even more and inspired a diversification in the scene's sounds, fashions, and lyrical content starting in about 1970. So the artists began to incorporate satirical lyrics and social commentary. It kind of got a bit more punk at that point. And there's, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, there's a, uh, an artist called Yol Aulerong, I think, I forgot to make a note of it. Well, Alarong, who um, was described, has been described by the New York Times as like a proto-punk at the time for incorporating oh, right. satirical lyrics and social commentary. Um, and they also started to incorporate more psychedelic rock sounds, aspects of funk and soul drawn from the likes of Wilson Pickett and James Brown and also harder rock sounds like Santana and Led Zeppelin. Um, so, and they also, the musicians also adopted hippie hairstyles and fashions and all as sort of like further indicators of the American influence in Cambodia at the time. So at the start of the 70s, basically, the scene was growing. It was developing with this latest wave uh, wave of rock musicians, um, plus established artists continuing their careers through the early 70s. Um, However, the Cambodian Civil War was taking its toll on the country at the time, as did um, the American bombing campaigns associated with the Vietnam War. So mm-hmm. due to wartime curfews, musicians often had to play in clubs during the day um, and they could often hear nearby gunfire and explosions during their performances. Oh. Um, so they persevered in this way, basically, until the fall of the Khmer Republic in April 1975. This is where we're uh, taking a bit of a negative turn, unfortunately. So the uh, the Cambodian Civil War ended in April 1975 when the communist Khmer Rouge defeated the Khmer Republic and gained control of the country. Um, The Khmer Rouge regime, led by Pol Pot, wanted to rid Cambodia of what they saw as decadent Western culture and return the nation to an idyllic notion of the past built around agriculture and farming. I've gone a bit history lesson now, but... So, mate, I'm, 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 look at me. Look at my face. Look how fascinated I am. I'm so hot. drawn in. I've got, Keep going. I know, I've, I've, Keep got, going. I've got a bit history lesson, but it's all, it's all relevant. No, I and love it. I'm this sure is... there are lots of people out there that do know all about the Khmer Rouge and, um, and what happened. But I honestly had been, I sort of, it's one of those things I had heard the words and I thought I knew what it was about. But um, yeah, until I, until you look weirdly, into it. it was through yeah. finding out about this music scene that I really found out about it. Um, so, yeah, so they wanted to return the nation to this version of the past built around agriculture and farming. So the Khmer Rouge ordered the two million residents of Phnom Penh to evacuate the city and move to prison farms and labour camps where they were effectively treated as slaves. So an unimaginable numbers of people... Two million? Unimaginable numbers of people were worked to death and routinely executed... Um, and within four years, the Khmer Rouge killed more than two million Cambodians, which was uh, almost a third of the total population. Oh, my God. So that's absolutely insane. So this is the, it's the Cambodian genocide is what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, a third. So, yeah, a third, that's, a third of the total population of Cambodia. That's, um, it's like unthinkable. Were isn't killed it? in the space of four years. 
Um, so the Khmer Rouge were particularly uh, mistrustful of artists and intellectuals, viewing them as part of an educated elite that had sided with the Cambodian government. Mm. So musicians posed an apparent threat to the Khmer Rouge regime due to their influence on culture, their incompatibility with a lifestyle centered around agriculture and their foreign influences. And so basically most of Cambodia's rock musicians disappeared during the genocide. And for the most part, their exact fates have never been concerned. So musicians, famous and obscure, were rounded up and sent into the killing fields. Some starved to death, some were executed and others died from torture. So the three main artists I spoke about all disappeared um, mm -hmm. during the genocide and nobody knows for sure what happened to them, but there are some stories. So yeah. due to his huge popularity, Sinsusimuth is likely to have been targeted for imprisonment or execution immediately. Like people knew who he was, right? He was a massive influence yeah, yeah, yeah. on the country. Yeah, he was huge. Um, yeah. However, so a, pop but a popular story that's told in Cambodia um, is that before he was to be executed... Uh, Sisimuth asked to sing one last song for the Khmer Rouge soldiers in an attempt to appeal to their emotions, but they were unmoved. And after he finished the singing, they shot him anyway. So, oh God. So I mean, that's probably not a true story. That's like, you know, it's a way. It's just a story that people have made up. That's sort of a. I mean, it's still horrible, but I guess a romanticized story. This idea that that's what he would have done, right? Because that's who he was. Yeah. He would have asked to yeah. sing one last song in an attempt to to move them with his incredible performance. Um, yeah. So, Rosary Sodia would similarly have likely been targeted for immediate imprisonment or execution because of her popularity. However, one story suggests that she was relocated to the Cambodian countryside for farm work. For a while, she managed to keep her identity a secret, but eventually she was exposed. The story says that she was then forced to marry a Khmer Rouge general and sing revolutionary anthems adulating Pol Pot. Um, this husband, however, was a very jealous person and would beat her. Um, and their disputes brought them up before the sub-district commandant, who predictably sided with the general. And after one last beating, um, Rose disappeared. Um, she was seen being taken into the forest on a cattle cart along the road to another village, but she never arrived there and she was never seen again. Again, not a confirmed story, although that one no, is slightly like more likely. That is one that comes it's from... It's probably not too far from Yeah, reality, that one comes from really? kind of witness um, testimony and stuff like that. Um, and Penran's younger sister says that um, that she's, that Pan survived... Um, sorry, Pen survived until um, the Vietnamese invasion of the late 1978... Sorry, I've confused myself in my notes. So Penran's younger sister <laughs> said that she survived until the Vietnamese invasion of late 1978, early 1979, um, when the Khmer Rouge launched their final series of mass executions. So she sort of survived most of the period, but towards yeah. the end when they fight, you know, the final series of mass executions they did, then sadly she died. Um, there were some musicians that did manage to survive through the various hardships, though. Um so there was a band called um, Draka that were one of the later bands in the scene, um, sort of around the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and the guitarist um, of that band was among many professional musicians who were forced to play traditional and patriotic music every day to the Khmer Rouge troops. Um, so some that were made to do that sort of managed to survive through then sort of serving the troops as, as musicians. Um, 
Another member of the band survived several years imprisonment at a work camp by pretending to be a common peasant. This was another thing, like mm. with um, Rosary Sodia in that story, she had to sort of hide her identity to try and survive. Yeah. So there were mm-hmm. there were some musicians who did that, um, <clears throat> and uh, another musician who did that was uh, the singer Sieng Banti, who confronted by insurgents um, who demanded to know her occupation. She lied and said that she was a banana seller, which probably saved her life. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's horrific. The whole thing is, is horrible, but. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating though. I mean, I didn't know. Well, no, that's, this is the thing. And it's amazing what you find out when you dig a bit deeper. It's so crazy that we don't know about it, but one of the reasons we don't know about it is that as well as almost all of the musicians being killed and executed, most of the recordings and information about those musicians was also lost during the chaos of the regime. Because yeah. in their attempt to purify Cambodian society and culture, the Khmer Rouge soldiers were known to destroy records and master tapes containing any Western-influenced music genres and often forced residents to burn their record collections. So the only reason that any of this stuff has survived and that we know anything mm-hmm. about it and are able to hear any of the music um, is because of the few citizens who managed to hide their personal collections of records in order to try right, and preserve okay. them and hide them from the Khmer Rouge. Um, and yeah. many of those and like oral histories as well exactly. would be really important exactly I guess that's why you get romanticised versions exactly, of right? things as well that's it but um, <laughs> yeah the fact that people you know that people did that that people understood it was important and you know put themselves in danger I suppose to try and hide those records and try and preserve them um, and so you know despite that many were damaged to the point that you know artist names or song titles were lost so there's also loads of it that's sort of undocumented and then it's through sort of the oral histories of the people that did survive that we've managed to find out who sang which records and, you know, who was on what um, and stuff like that. So there was kind of a black market of the reprints and remixes of the surviving records um, that sort of kept it all alive and circulating. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it sort of started to be discovered by tourists in the 90s that then sort of brought it back to the West and put together compilation CDs. so that all of this is sort of how we now do know about it. And then there are also mm-hmm. new bands um, who now try to recreate the sounds of the genre, such as um, Dengue Fever and Cambodian Space Project. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much the story. Um, oh, that's absolutely fascinating. It's mad. It's absolutely mad. And I cannot recommend enough that you go hear the music because it is honestly yeah, so unique. Um so incredible just the i don't know it's like yeah this combination of like the cambodian vocals with like psychedelic rock kind of sounding instruments Mm -hmm. like it sounds like it could be in a a lot of it sounds like it should be in like a tarantino movie or something do you know what i mean like yeah 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 it's got such a cool vibe to it and if you want to know more about it um as well there's a documentary called don't think i've forgotten um, which I, I really want to see. I, in preparing for this podcast, I was trying to find somewhere to watch it and I couldn't find anywhere to watch it. It was like available to watch in the UK online. So if anyone is able yeah. to find it to watch somewhere, please do let us know. Yeah. Um, rambles at gmail.com, I think, is the email, right? Yes, I think you're right, Kevin. Um, yeah, if anyone is able to find it to watch somewhere, um, please do let me know because I would really, really like to watch it. Um, but, um, yeah, it's incredible. And in the show notes as well, I'll include some links to a couple of compilation CDs that you can hear some of it. 
um, and a link to the website about the documentary as well. Um, but yeah, it's incredible music um, and just an absolutely insane story. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that that's, yeah, this is kind of when I um, was talking to you about what to do for this episode. This is the kind of thing that I was, you know, hoping that we would discover. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because it's, yeah, it's amazing. Nicely done, Kaza. Oh, that was brilliant. Thanks. It is like a proper, um, un, I feel, for me at least, I mean, may, maybe everyone knows about it, but I don't think they do. Um, I think it's a real, like, undiscovered gem of, like, music that's out, really out there is. in the world that needs to be heard by more people. But, and people need to know the story as well, because, you know, I don't know, to have been persecuted and, and, and killed in such a way for, for being musicians and for, you know... Well, this is why it's interesting because your story sort of echoes a lot of the things I'm going to talk yeah. about as well, that relationship between the music and the socio-political circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously really important because it grows out of that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, I feel like it... Thanks. Like Kim. I say, oh, it's all right. Like I say, it has, <laughs> it has a sad end, but I think there are other things to take from it just in terms of how, I don't know, it's just such an, an interesting piece of history. Um, mm-hmm that yeah people need to know about and learn from I think um yeah yeah well like non-western history as well exactly you know you fed a very specific narrative aren't exactly. you um at school and growing up and yeah yeah exactly that so yeah no it's it's no it's great cool but let's maybe cheer things up a little with some new music yes so uh, yes it's brighton what what have you got for us Gracie so my new music this week uh animal breakdown mm-hmm. they released a single last friday called almost lost yeah i'm gonna play it for you now
So that was Animal Breakdown with Almost Lost. Uh, that single was out Friday the 13th of November. It's a cool... What do you reckon, Keza? It's a cool song. I like it. Quite like... Quite like, I don't know, 80s, early 90s vibes to it, I feel. I feel like I get... It has, with a hint of psychedelia. Yeah, definitely. I'm into it. Big fan. There's a nice... I feel like there's a nice softness to the lyrics as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like there's echoes of... I don't know, echoes of sort of like the Smiths or the Cure or something like that a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a mix, isn't it? Yeah. It's very... Um, what's it? Jesus and Mary Chain as well. Yeah. Do you not think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm into it. For fans of? I'm into it. <coughs> right then, so... Is it time for... Uh, it's time to j- it time j- for my... jet ourselves off to Africa. It is indeed. Right, so... Now, when I told you I was going to do this story of Felicuti... I was I was pretty you, excited, uh, wasn't I? Because... You were very excited. I'm a big fan of, uh, of Felicuti's <coughs> music and Afrobeat. And I wrote an essay about him my first year at university. And I even saw his you son, did? Femi Kuti, perform while I was at university as well. I went to a Femi yeah, Kuti Yeah, you say that's... It was banging. Yeah. Banging. Yeah, I bet it was. Really, really good. Um, well, so maybe you might know a lot of this already, Keza. We'll see. Feel free I'm not to sure. chip in at any point. I'm not sure I will. <laughs> first year of university was an upsettingly long time ago <laughs> at this point. I oh, know, God. But um, I, will, I will chip in if anything comes back to me. But I'm still excited to hear what you're going to talk about and what angle you're going to sort of take it from. Wow. I hope I don't let you down, Keza. Sure. I hope I don't let sure you down. Sure you won't, Grace and Two Keys. <laughs> Bring it. Hit me with it. Right then, so... The story of Felicuti in about 20 minutes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so the father of Afrobeat. So Afrobeat, as I understand it, is sort of a collision of Africa and black America. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So, <laughs> so far, so, so far, good. So far, so good. We're on the same page. We're not falling out. <laughs> so I'll talk a little bit about the music, obviously. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> it's a music podcast, after all. Because uh, obviously that in itself is really interesting. But him as an activist and political agitator is also a fascinating story. I don't know if you know much about him as a person or if you studied more the, you know, Afrobeat. I know. I would assume it was a bit of both. So in a way, he was like Nigeria's answer to punk. Most accounts of punk that, well, at least the ones sort of we've talked about and a lot of academia focuses on white Western punk, although to be fair, it's getting a lot more inclusive and better in terms of telling the stories of, out, you know, any of one outside of the, the white Western idea. <coughs> but to me, it's like the most interesting musician to come out of Africa. Yeah. At least at that time. Sure. So he was born in 1938 and grew up in... Abayokuta. I hope I've said that right. Lots of lots of questionable pronunciations in this re- episode. I know. If I haven't, I apologise. Once again, and can please if, someone correct yeah. me and tell me how to if pronounce we offend, it because I should know how to pronounce it. Yeah. That. If we offend anyone or we pronounce anything really really badly, please do send us in some corrections. We want to learn and be better. No, <laughs> you really must because it's important that we we know how to pronounce yeah. these. So I, I I think that's right. Um, so he born in 1938, grew up in Abeokuta, which is southwest Nigeria, and he was born into a, a like an upper middle class city and family, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so yeah, a very respectable family. His mum was a teacher and feminist, political activist who won the Lenin Peace Prize. Wow. 
Don't ask me to tell you anything about that. <laughs> I won't. Probably, so, probably something to do with communism. <laughs> cool. But <laughs> don't, I don't have any more information on that other than that she won mm-hmm. it. Um, his father was an Anglican preacher, first president of the Nigerian Union of Teachers, and apparently also a very talented pianist. Mm. So that kind of explains him, really. He's got the musical side from his dad and he's got this, you know, the activist side from his mum. And even, I think, uh, Um, maybe even a bit of the preacher from his dad as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So born into an upper middle class family that had big dreams for him. They wanted him to go into medicine, uh, which two of his brothers did end up doing. But obviously he didn't. Um, he was gifted musically from a really young age. So at eight, he was learning piano and drums. Cool. So a bit of a, a, a Tuki <laughs> hybrid there. You could, you, could, you could merge us together, make us male and African. <laughs> We'd be there. So that's what you get. <laughs> sure, sure, Tuki. Don't think you're stretching at all there. Carry on. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah, very talented from a young age. Also led his school choir. So you got a bit of a master general in there as well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's one way of looking at Why it. Why not? It? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's one way for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in all seriousness, the musical father, activist mother... <laughs> And these experiences shaped the music that he went on to write, which I'm sure you already know lots about, Keza. Sure. So, <laughs> so at 20, I remember seeing this in your essay. You? What did you see in my this essay? Bit. So at 20 years old, he came to London to study medicine. I don't, actually, I don't know if that bit was in there. I don't the think first it was. bit about the medicine. I don't think it was. So he actually came to London to study medicine, but... Literally, within days of arriving, he changed his mind and he registered at the Trinity College of Music. Wow. Um, that takes, that takes yeah, guts. So it, it does. It does indeed. So he signed up to a classical music course to study piano and composition. Apparently, he was a big Handel fan. Was he? Didn't know that. So, Oh, yeah, apparently. All about yeah. Handel. In, in fact, bit of a tangent, but have you been to the Handel and Hendrix house in Mayfair? No, I haven't. You've told me about it before, though. Oh, you've got to go, I mate. Know. You've got to go. It's brilliant. So you get to look at Jimi Hendrix's old flat. Yeah. Which uh, obviously happened to be in the same building as where Handel used to live. Also, fun fact, nothing to do with uh, what I'm talking about, but did you know that Jimi Hendrix's favourite TV show was Coronation Street? <laughs> what? That I learnt that. <laughs> yeah. How good is that? Oh my God, that? that's an incredible fact. Isn't it brilliant? That's a really good fact. I need to remember that fact. That's is that fact of the episode? Yeah, that is fact of the episode. Yes, that wins a hundred percent. Wow. So yeah, um, where was I? So he registered at the Trinity College of Music, and that's where he formed the band Kula Lobitos. I hope that's right. Sounds right. Um, I don't know if you've seen any videos of him around this point, but he was. Yeah, I mean, he had mad trumpet skills. Keza. Mad trumpet he was ridiculously skills. talented. Oh, mad he was, trumpet he was skills. ridiculously talented. He played quite a lot of different instruments, yeah. right? He did, yeah. I mean, studied piano composition. Yeah. The, what did I say earlier about he was what led the school choir? I mean, and yeah. ridiculously good at trumpet. I mean, he was just, yeah. Yeah. 
He, the mu- music was in him. Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> the sound that he went for, he called it high life. Yeah. Um, high life jazz. Does that, does that turn? High life jazz. High life jazz. Yes. Yeah. Very good, Keza. Well done. On it. So apparently, high life originated from Ghana in the early 20th century, but his was like a twist on it. So, like you said, it was high life yeah. jazz. And he included Nigerian sounds, which included heavy use of percussion, trumpets, horns. So it was really a unique sound. Um, and by the time he finished uni, which was, I think, I think we're around early 60s. Yeah, 1961. So by the time he finished uni, they were one of London's most popular bands. Yeah. There was a bit of an underground craze in London at this point, apparently, for African dance music, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah, I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to the drummer, Tony Allen who was um, a really big part of um, sort of what that band was and bringing sort of the jazz sensibility to it. And he died um, recently this year, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, Tony Allen died this year, but was an absolutely incredible drummer and um, massively important um, to, to the band and um, Bella Futi's music. We should put something about him in the show notes yeah, then. Yeah, for sure. So, yes... So 1963, he returned to Nigeria, and at this point he had a wife and two children, uh, and then they had another child when they got back to Nigeria. And when he got back, he played in a band and worked as a producer at the Nigerian Broadcasting Corporation. But apparently he got sick of that quite quickly. He resigned and went back to playing High Life. He formed a new band, but kept the name Kula Labitos. So... Yeah, he was still writing and performing at this point. And his popularity really started to grow, but <coughs> excuse me, his personal life was, was crumbling. So his wife couldn't stand what she considered to be a hectic life. So they decided to live separately. But the kids were still very much part of his life. They got to see him a lot. They used to watch him jam. Um, and then two of them, like you mentioned, well, you mentioned one of them earlier, went on to be successful musicians. Yep. So they were obviously clearly influenced a lot by him and his work. Um, so, yeah, rehearsals at his house were apparently really strict. They rehearsed at least twice a week, sometimes three times if they had a new song coming out. And I think that got even more strict, actually, as time went on. Later on, I I can't remember if I've included it in my notes, but I was watching a documentary on him earlier. And apparently, towards, like like at the height of his career basically he was rehearsing pretty much every day like for hours and hours and hours i just don't know how people have that in them (laughs) to like to do it for so long like i love music but it's just mad that they for like eight nine hours it's like treated like a full-time job well that's it i think for one thing if it is really your full-time job that's part of it too isn't it but i just think some people do just have that other level right of of sort of music inside them that that has to come out also almost you know yeah definitely and he he's quite clearly a case of that I mean it's nuts how how much he rehearsed um so yeah so at this point we're around 1963-ish when he comes back so this is where the politics starts to come in (coughs) so between oh no it's a bit later than that sorry so between 1967 and 1970 the Nigerian military government were in the middle of a civil war and his musical popularity was on a bit of a downward spiral because I guess at that point, the Nigerians, they didn't really want to dance. There was too much going on politically. Yeah. Um, so he And he was really upset by this. 
Um, so he went to the US on a 10-month tour. But that kind of made it worse because no one really knew who he was. So it didn't live up to his expectations. Um, so that kind of made the situation worse. But the trip in itself ended up being really important because this is where he met black power activist Sandra Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and she introduced him to the writings of Malcolm X and other black radicals. So you've got these really, these two really important women in his life, really. His mum yeah. and then Sandra, yeah. who influenced a lot of his political views. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the trip to the US proved um, quite significant. So when he came back, his mum started to encourage him to sing songs that his people would understand. Not, not essentially, not escapism. Yeah, you know, something that they could engage to with. Talk about what was going on and the, the issues that were happening at the time. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then perhaps through his music, he could make a difference. So she encouraged him to try and to try and go down that road. So he became more, I guess, like Afro conscious. Mm. And his music took a different direction. So in 1969, he released a song called My Lady Frustration. I don't know if you've heard that one. I'm not sure if I have. <coughs> I'm, I'm sure I have at some point, but not to like... Well, I think I really think we should do a playlist, actually. Yeah. And I'll pop that on cool. it. Because um, this is where he sort of... This is the song that's considered the point where he introduces the world to Afrobeat. Um, so Afrobeat, apparently, because I don't know too much about it... Um, it was mostly known for its lights, dancers, lots of instruments, horns, percussion, African chants. It borrowed from tra- basically traditional African ways of celebration. Yeah, it's sort of like um, um, amalgamated sort of what he was doing before, right, with sort of aspects of jazz, um, the funk of like James Brown, um, the high life he was doing, tra- but then with traditional yeah. <coughs> African rhythms and sort of chanted declamatory vocals that were all sort of a bit more African. Yeah. Um, and with a pol- political element as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so he changed the band's name to Africa 70 at this point, or it might have been, the name might have been a bit longer than that. I think I might have No, I'm, I think it's, it's, Africa, 70. it's Africa 70. As far as I know. Um, I think so he starts, so he starts singing about things that are happening around people. So he's trying to open their eyes a bit more so they can take action, basically. Mm. This is where he went punk, really. Because it's like, he was trying to energise people. Yeah, for sure. Into... <coughs> Excuse me. Again, sorry. it's like it's sort of sort of like what we were saying about the the stars of the Cambodian rock scene being quite punk. It, it's not that the, mm-hmm. it's not that the music was punk as we know it, right? It's more in like no. the attitude and the the purpose behind what what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. The, that sort of um, the need to energize, really. Yeah, to, yeah, exactly. To and to inspire change, right? To inspire um, social change, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So this was like the turning point for him, really. Um, also, it was after his time in the US that that's when he created his studio, which um, is actually quite a well-known thing now. Um, it was a communal place where he wanted Nigerians could, to enjoy art and be free, yeah. essentially. So he lived in the studio and recorded all his music there. Um, he later launched his own nightclub called The Shrine. Yeah. Which apparently James Brown visited in 1970 when he toured Nigeria. <laughs> so cool. So it's a really well-known place. 
Um, and this is the point in his career where he starts to become really well known beyond Nigeria. So, but of course, this the commune brought him into a lot of conflict with the authorities, and he was arrested quite a lot um, throughout his life um, because of the the subject of his is a lot of his songs. Um, apparently, he was arrested around two hundred times altogether. Two hundred times—that's mad. Yeah. Isn't it? So some of the arrests were for abduction because a lot of young girls ran away from home right. to his commune and he, he was arrested because he, you know, it was, he was considered you know, responsible yeah. for that. Um, two, two of the women, one was a, the daughter of a Nigerian judge. Okay. Which of I mean, course that was, was, nev- was never going to end well, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. And the other one was the daughter of a police officer. So, of course, that wasn't going to end no. well either. So, yeah, a lot of the charges were for abduction. Oh, wow. Um, well, because I suppose they would have to get in with something. Yeah, I mean... Wouldn't they? Because yeah. I guess it's like, what, what is he actually well, doing? Well, exactly, I guess that's it. They're trying to find reasons, aren't they, to try and silence him and, mm-hmm. to, and to stop him from, you know, uh, promoting... Speaking yeah, out. speaking out and promoting this you know, different way of life that's going against the, the tradition and, and all of, and yeah, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, to be fair, his relationship to women was a bit problematic, as you'll find out. In yeah, a I, was, I, was, I was thinking um, that in the back of my head as well. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> sure if he was completely innocent. No, um, <laughs> certainly not on that side so of things. He, <coughs> so his family also became a target for attacks as well. Um, and this is, this bit's really sad. So it, Actually, no, I'm not going to the sad bit yet. Sorry, <laughs> not just yet. There is a sad bit in a minute, but there's a bit before that. So in 1970, excuse me, in 1974, he was arrested and sent to a prison called Calicuta. And when he was released, he renamed the commune after the prison. So it was called the Calicuta Republic. Yeah. He fenced it off and declared it a breakaway state, basically. So he ran it like his own system, had his own laws, had even had his own jail. Yeah, I was gonna say, and he was he was the judge. He had like barbed wire around <laughs> it, and like it's quite full on, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, throughout this point, he continued to use music to point out the ills this country was facing. So he launched really scathing attacks on the government, and essentially was trying to spur an audience to action. Yeah, and he talked about things like um, skin bleaching, didn't he? And like a lot of. Yeah, he did. Because he was inspired by sort of the Black Panthers, wasn't he, in, in America? Like you say, the teachings of Mal- Malcolm X and and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, because, yeah, even within Africa, right, you've got a sort of racism that, you know, leads to skin bleaching and all these sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we touched on so many different topics. I mean, I mean, later on I'll talk about his musical output because, honestly, it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean... He he worked twenty four seven. Well, I know that's where you're like, oh yeah, do you know that song? I'm like, I feel like he has so many songs. I don't know that I remember any yeah. of them by name. Do you know what I mean? <coughs> oh, it's nuts. Um, so in 1977, year zero in Britain, <laughs> he releases Zombie, which was a two track mini album that was overtly anti military. Basically, it was it was like um, he was mocking the do as you told mentality of Nigerian soldiers. Mm. Um, it's really interesting that you see like that punk ethos popping up all over the world at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, yeah, it's um, a collective consciousness thing where even though, I don't know, people that aren't even aware of each other and aren't 
um, oh yeah, I can't think of the words. But it I know what you mean. But it's it tends like, to happen all, all the time, right? Where people seem to be having the same ideas all over the place without knowing about each other's ideas. I feel yeah, like I feel really, like that happens really again and again over over history. It's really strange. It really does, and I think this is an example of that. Um, and also, what you were talking about because it wasn't too far no, away, really, from from this. Yeah. Um, so I think this track was like the tipping point for the state, really, and. Um, and they responded with force. Apparently, a thousand army officers attacked his commune. Um, they, Thousands. That's crazy. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? They all pleaded for restraint, kept asking them to give peace a chance. They threw his mum out of a window. What? And she never recovered from the injuries, That's died awful. 14 months later. That's really awful. I know, it's horrendous. He received a serious beating. Um, they brought everyone out of the commune naked. All the women were raped. Mm. It was just horrendous, yeah, absolutely really horrendous. Um, and, of course, this huge trauma tormented him for the rest of his life, as it would everyone else at the commune, because it was just, it, wow, it's just, you can't even imagine no. that, Not can you? All. It's just, it's awful. Um, but despite all of that, what's amazing is that he continued to fight even after that. Mm. I mean, he was so resilient and he believed so much in the message that he continued after that. So, and this is the bit where I, so this is the bit that makes him sound a bit dodgy. Yeah. So in 1978, he married 27 yeah, women. 27 wives. Right. That's a lot of wives. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the reasons behind it apparently are very unclear. Okay. But I think he tried. Well, I think it's quite clear why you wouldn't marry twenty. He he tried to justify it as a way of answering critics who accused him of abducting women. Right. But it's kind of like I'm well, not quite sure how that works. Proving their point. Yeah. A little not, bit. Not convinced by that one, if I'm honest. Nor me, mate. To be fair. So yeah, um, he began touring again after that horrific attack on the commune. Um, he performed zombie again in Ghana. A protest broke out and he was prevented from entering the country again. The influence he had on ordinary people inspired him to start trying to change Nigeria himself. So he realised that he was having an effect on people and that his music was reaching people. So he thought, right, what can I do to actually make a change here? Because he didn't feel like he was doing enough. So he had a group of young supporters in 1979 and he thought, what I'll do is I'll form a movement and I will run for president. Right. But when he applied to be a candidate, it was turned down by the authorities. Shocking. So he said, he, I, saw an inter, I was watching an interview with him earlier and he believed that they were trying to make the government a two-party government. But yeah, so a lot of people say that if he had of ran for president, there was a chance that he would have really? won and Nigeria would have been a very different country wow. today, yeah, which I thought was really, really interesting. Really interesting. So they shut that down straight away um, and realised that he actually couldn't make a difference in that sense. So he returned to his music. He created a brand new band, the Egypt 80, yep. and that was inspired by ancient Egypt civilization. So he encouraged Africans to embrace ancient Egyptian philosophy, science religion 
at this point it released a song called ITT, uh, which was International Thief Thief. Don't know if you've heard of that I'm one. Sure, actually. So in it, he names loads of politicians who are vol- who are involved in right. corruption. So even at this point, he's still going, despite all of the you he's know had, he, the he's had some setbacks for sure. But he's powering through. He really powering has. Through. And he he's, he keeps going. Um, he keeps like changing. So he keeps 19... like adjusting his path, right? As well, like he keeps almost like he does. He keeps taking on yeah more information, like more um, yeah you know philosophy and things like that, and kind of changing his his direction. He really is. So in 1984, he was about to leave for the US again and he was arrested at the airport and taken to face a military tribunal. Um, And he was apparently charged with smuggling currencies out of the country. He was sentenced to five years in prison, which was the longest term that he ever received um, and attracted international attention. Amnesty International, actually spoke out and said the prosecution was political and loads of artists called for his release. So, again, it was like they were trying to find something. Yeah, just trying to find any way to silence him, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, although he was sentenced to five years, it was 20 20 months when he was released. Um, He divorced all his wives (laughs) as soon as he got out of prison because this this really made me laugh, right? He said... He, that, he divorced them all because apparently he no longer believed in the institution of marriage because it leads to jealousy. And <laughs> well, I thought, well, if you've got, got 27, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's a breeding ground for jealousy, yeah, isn't it? Just a little bit, just a little bit. I feel like he, uh, <laughs> yeah, he set himself up for that one, just a tiny, tiny bit. He did, didn't How he? How do you keep, even keep track of 27 wives? Like, that's insane. <clears throat> Mate. It's, yeah, I mean, that's mad, isn't it? <laughs> it's mad. I'll let that one go, though. <laughs> we'll let it go. He, he redeemed himself he, he in did other some ways, other, didn't every, he? You know, most people are problematic, <laughs> right? No one's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, after this, he led a bit of a quiet life, really. His album output slowed down. And then, very sadly, he died in 1997. Um, apparently... It was HIV related, um, but those closest to him say he died from the torture he sustained from the military. Oh, really? So I'm not really sure what happened there. I'm not sure either. Um, he left behind seven children in the end, uh, two of which obviously went on to become like that's quite, I feel musicians like, in their I own right. I feel like that's quite a modest number from 27 wives. To be Considering, fair. yeah, no, I thought that. <laughs> well, the prob- there's probably more out Could there be. that he didn't know Could about. Be. Um. So, yeah, loads of African artists today are influenced by him. Um, there's lots of interviews. The documentary that I watched, I'll put in the show notes, because there's lots of interviews at the end with Nigerian musicians who were influenced by cool. him and Afrobeat. He apparently recorded 50 albums in total. 50. Wow. That is, that's... It's like you were saying earlier. He's the, like prolific. The, a thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. records or whatever it was. I mean, that's it's mad. absolutely mad. Like I say, some people just seem to have, like so much music inside them that like needs to come out in mm-hmm. a way that's just like on a level above um yeah your average musician i suppose apparently there's a broadway musical about him there? yeah so i was reading uh, the guardian earlier yeah. there's a broadway musical uh, i think it well at first it was off broadway in 2008 and then I th- i'm pretty sure it was on broadway really? it got rave reviews wow. yeah string of awards 
Jay Z was one of the show's co-producers. I've never heard. And then, and apparently, it was brought to London in 2010, and there was a production of it at the National Theatre. No clue. Pretty big deal. (laughs) Nor me, mate. Nor me. Um. So yeah. That's the uh, that's the fascinating story of uh, Felicuti. Cool. I've enjoyed our little trip around the world today. Yeah, it's been really good, yeah, hasn't it's it? Been, um, it's been different and uh, it's been a nice thing to do when uh, our world has become quite small at the moment for the most part, right, in lockdown. Oh, tell me about it. So it's nice to, to look a bit further afield. All right, so my new music pick for this week's episode is I Don't Like This Party by Teenage Waitress. was I Don't Like This Party by Teenage Waitress, uh, a band the well, a band, I say. Actually, it's just Daniel Ash, who is a Southampton-based singer-songwriter. Um, and I played him on the podcast before, but I wanted to, to play this song at this particular point in time uh, because it is from his debut album, Love and Chemicals, which was released uh, last Friday, Friday the 13th. 
uh, a risky day, mm-hmm. a risky day to release an album, yeah. but I think it's gone pretty well for him. And it's, I think it's paid off. an absolutely <laughs> awesome album. So he um, writes himself about the album that Love and Chemicals plays like a collection of short stories or vignettes. I wanted to create something of a musical patchwork quilt with all sorts of different textures, styles and emotions, um, which I think is a really great description of, of the album. I had listened to it yesterday, in fact, um, and I really, really loved it. It's a great album. I highly recommend everyone to go and check it out. Um, it's got a really unique and interesting sound. Um, I really like his use of the of synths on the album um, and the way he plays around with some unusual instruments on there as well, like accordion and kazoo and even some spoons. Um, and I chose this song in particular because I just think it's such like a catchy, upbeat pop banger, um, but also has that like unique edge in some of the sounds that he uses on it that I just think makes it super duper cool. Well, as always, Keza, excellent choice. Well, thank you. Um, and it's been been a fun episode i think we've done all right two keys we've done okay haven't yeah, we? yeah i feel we've, i feel like uh, we've kept it together despite missing um our great and fearless leader we have we've done all right i mean i'm about four drinks deep but I th- so <laughs> we've kept it together though <laughs> for the most part i think we've kept it together quite well i think everyone will be uh none the wiser <laughs> well until you told them just then obviously <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there is that. Yeah, you sort of gave it away at the end there. We were doing well. And then, you know, I mean, what have you had? You've had, you started on champagne because you're a fancy bitch. Mm -hmm. And then you moved on to Mm -hmm. Hot Mm -hmm. House Lager. Mate, lockdown has changed me. What, you're just an alcoholic now? Yeah, well, fancy bitch. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) All about treating yourself these days. I mean, it is the little things, isn't it? It's the little things now. Of course it is. Of course that's it what, is. If you can't have a bit of champagne on a oh, Tuesday night. I mean, that's night. what gets you through the week, isn't it? Can't say, pers- personally, cannot say I've had champagne at any point during lockdown, but still, <laughs> <laughs> I get where you're coming from. <laughs> well, I don't regret it. I think it. At, at best, I've maybe had like a fancy, slightly more expensive beer, but still. <laughs> what, um, <laughs> what should people do if they want to call us up on uh, all of our mistakes? <laughs> Is that you prompting me to do my yeah, bit? Yeah, I was. I, I felt like I wasn't sure you'd, you'd yeah. remembered that you were supposed to do it. Ah, uh, no, you you were right <laughs> to do that because I didn't remember. Um, if you spot any mistakes, which I'm sure you will, please please let us know. Please let us know. Um, rockpoprambles at gmail dot com. The one. And also, if you've got any new music, if you're a band new music you yeah wanna, we'd love to play yeah you. we'd love to play you or if you know a band that you're like this band should be played on your podcast then do let us know give us some recommendations because yeah, that's true we just what we love hearing new bands don't we or if you've got any music related interesting slash funny oh, stories yeah. that we should know Definitely. about let us know do let us know we need inspiration and as always thank you for your support yeah I reckon, I feel like I'm going to totally put you on the spot now. You're going to hate me for this. I think that oh. I want you to I want you to finish on an inspiring thought. <laughs> an inspiring thought? Yeah, go on. Give it, leave us with something. Leave us with something to think about. Um, I ain't got anything, mate. I, I'd, an inspiring thought? I don't know. Just something. <laughs> I've barely got any thoughts at the minute. <laughs> That's true. That's true. 
just let alone an inspiring so one. I tell you what, we'll finish. Let, let's leave everyone with failures. Uh, failures? Fellas. I can't even speak anymore. Fella Cooties, trademark slogan. Music is a weapon. Over and out.